0: Psalm 22, 1 through 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. God, you seem far off to me right now. And the psalm tells me that it's not in you, for you are holy. You do no wrong, you only do right. The fault is rather with me. I am a worm and not a man. God, help us to understand why it feels that we are forsaken, why it feels that we are alone sometimes but I pray that through understanding of being forsaken and feeling alone and you seeming far off, that we would see that you are not far off. That we would see through this wonderful psalm that you are rather near to us. You have even experienced what this psalmist describes as being rejected by men, being forsaken by God, being pierced, having lions and bulls and wolves at him. God, help us to see that you give us relief even through this psalm, even in suffering and the feeling of being forsaken. Lord, we thank you most of all for Christ. We love and praise you in his holy name. Amen. One of the questions that I have asked and received, and especially as a pastor received, is this question. Where is God? Most of the time when people ask that question, they're not asking a spatial question. They're not asking a geographical question. They're more asking a question of presence, a question of feeling. Why don't I feel like God is here right now? Why does God seem so distant? Oftentimes this question will be asked or this issue will be posed in the midst of sorrow, suffering, pain. Maybe it's, Things like financial difficulties. Maybe it's marital struggles. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's physical, emotional, psychological pain. It may be worse, it's the loss of a loved one. And I know that in mentioning all of those things, I know that I probably touched each and every one of you in here. Because the reality of suffering and the reality of this feeling is it's not distant. It's rather quite close to many of us. And I think if we're honest and we're real, we will ask this question in some form or fashion. Like the psalmist asks, where is God? I can still remember, plain as day, the first time I believe I asked this question. It was the summer between my seventh and eighth grade year, and I had just found out that my grandfather had died. And so we went to my grandmother and grandfather's house, and everyone went into the house to go comfort my grandmother and my mom and to mourn and to weep with them. I did not. My, father, my grandfather was a farmer, and so I went out to look at the farm and to look at the fields. And I can still remember this question coming to my mind. Where are you, God? Where are you? It's a strong question. It's a difficult question and I must admit there are many answers and there is a full biblical theology to that answer, but David doesn't give it. David does not give every answer that we desire. He doesn't. He answers for his own circumstances. He answers for his personal life. He talks about why he is forsaken. And so we are going to look to that question. Why is it that sometimes God feels distant? And as I said, this will not apply to every scenario. I cannot say that this is the answer for you why you might feel that God is distant from you. But it can help us at least understand why David asks the question. And I want to say, I think this is good to understand, that in David posing the greatest question, maybe not the greatest question, but one of the greatest questions, God, where are you? Especially when I don't feel that you're here we find one of the best answers to the question. And I think even though David's scenario doesn't probably fit all of us, I think the answer does. And so we will see that in this text. So look towards Psalm 22 as we walk through it. I will prepare you now that as we go through Psalm 22, I will be jumping around a little bit through the psalm, but I'll try to make you aware of where I'm at. It's just because of the nature of the psalm and how it fits. But look to the first two verses again. David starts off with one of the most honest, clear, but also sobering and sorrowful pleas we see in the scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the works of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. The psalmist, David, is clearly in great sorrow. He's in great pain, great agony. And as I described um, about many things that we experience sorrow and suffering from, it could be many of those things. And the reality to the background of this psalm, even though oftentimes when we search these psalms and we want to know the exact situation is we really don't know. We do not know exactly what David is experiencing. It could be a moment where he has many enemies, and I think that's part of it, many enemies surrounding him to attack him from other nations. It could be the moment where his sons or some of his sons are deserting him and leaving him. It could be a moment where he is wrestling with his sin. It could be many different things, but we do not know the exact moment. What we know is how David feels. And what David says. And David asks the question that most of us are probably afraid to ask. Why have you forsaken me? Sometimes we look at this question and we can think, how dare David ask this? And just think about it for a moment. Let's imagine that you were in a Sunday school room and people were offering prayer requests and someone said, where is God? Why has he forsaken me? I could just imagine the Sunday school teacher saying, How dare you say that? But it's what the psalmist says. David shows that prayers are honest, cries to God are honest. And this cry is one of the best cries you can have because you probably do sometimes feel like you're forsaken. And the way to go about that is not by, Oh, I'm not forsaken, God's always here. Maybe it's sometimes to actually raise the cry. And to ask. David then begins to go into the answer to the question. Because it's almost as though David is actually asking a rhetorical question here. He actually knows the answer. And he begins first by pointing to God and his character and his faithfulness. Look at verses 3 through 5 and then we're going to jump down to 9 through 10. David, you're going to have to keep up with me this morning. Verse 3, David looks at God and he says, Are you unfaithful? Are you wrong for what's happening? No. He says, yet, even though you have forsaken me, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. David, in his cry, in his sorrow, in his anguish, asks: is there any fault in God? Is there any wrong? Is there any sin? Has God done me a terrible thing? The answer is no. God is holy. God is righteous. David reflects on God as though God is something like the sun. The sun is constant, bright, and shining day after day. Even as the world turns and rotates, and even though you don't see it sometimes, the sun is always shining. And David says the problem is not with God. The reason that I am forsaken is not with God, because he's always right. He never does wrong. He is always righteous. He is always righteous in all that he does. But it's not just that he's righteous. It's also that God has always been faithful skip down to verse 9 through 10 with me to look at how david describes his faithfulness he says yet you are he who took me from the womb you made me trust in you at my mother's breast on you was i cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my god not only is god always righteous not only is god always shining like the sun not only is he always good He is always there. He is always faithful. And at this point in the psalm, we really begin to feel some tension in David's life. And the tension comes from this. David looks at his past and he says, you were with me at my birth. You have been with me through my youth. You are always there. You are always faithful. But then in in verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if the issue is not with God, if the reason God has forsaken David is not God's flaw, the question then becomes, whose fault is it? Is it God's? David answers us in verse 6 with the problem, with the issue that is taking place. Verse 6, something we never call ourselves, and sometimes I think we would think this is actually unbiblical to say, but listen to how David describes himself. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. David, in the middle of reflecting upon God's goodness, how he's always right, and that how God is always faithful, says the problem is me. The reason why God has forsaken him, and he actually has forsaken him, we'll talk about that and how that all works out, is me. He says, I am a worm and not a man. Now it sounds as though David is denying that he is bearing the image of God. I don't believe that's what David is actually doing. I think rather David has a really good biblical theology and he knows that he's made in the image of God. He's written these things before in the Psalms. But what I think David is doing right here by saying I'm a worm and not a man is by saying I'm sinful. And not just that I commit sin but rather I'm marred by sin. I'm scarred by sin. Sin has actually come in and it has actually ruined the image. So much so that you can't even see me for who I am. The other day, fun fact for you just to lighten the mood for a moment. Uh, my mother was over and Ruthie was crawling on the ground and uh, my mom says, oh, squirmy, wormy, squirmy, wormy. And I was like, man, Ruth, you just got called a worm. And my, mo- and, and my mom's like, oh, how dare I? I was like, well, It's actually biblical. It's actually biblical. That's for having a pastor as your uh, son, right? And your father. But it's true, isn't it? It's true. Well, yes, we are all created in the image of God. In one sense, we are glory of God, as Paul says. We're also garbage. We're glory and garbage at the same time. How about that? And the reason that there is this forsakenness going on, the reason that there is this tension between God, who is apparently forsaking man, is not because of God. Now remember, he is like the sun, always shining, forever. But what has happened is sin is coming. Sin has crept in. And like a cloud, like this last week, as the gray slate of clouds covers our sky and we haven't seen the sun in a week, We are not able to see God. And we wonder, where is he? See, sin comes in like a cloud. And it darkens our vision. It darkens our ability to actually see God. And we ask this question, where are you? David knows the issue is with himself. David knows that the issue since Genesis 3 is not God. It was not God who came into the garden and said, hey, take this fruit of the tree. It was not God who actually ate the fruit of the tree. No, it was mankind. This is the hard issue, and like I said earlier, this may not apply to all suffering, but it definitely includes it. And maybe if you're in this position and you're asking, where is God at all times, or where is God in my life? David wants to reflect and he wants to say, the reason why I don't feel God's presence is because of my sin. It's because I'm a worm and not a man. Because of this, we have to ask ourselves, do we feel distant from God? Do we feel that God is far off? Do we feel like the psalmist right here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think if we ask that question, we then have to begin first to be reflective and say, I wonder why he feels far off most of the time when I hear this question being asked from a lot of people, oftentimes there's a lot of finger pointing. God, he's the problem. He's the one who's forsaken me. And very rarely do we actually begin to look inside ourselves and say, I wonder if there's something in me. I wonder if there's some sin that's been hiding around in my life. I wonder if there's been something going on in me that's actually the flaw and not actually able to see the God above. I wonder if it's as though the sin clouds have come over me and I'm not actually able to have good fellowship with him. When I'm honest with myself and I look back at my past as a Christian and I see the times where there was the most drought and the least relationship that I had with God, or the least fruit that I had in my relationship with God, I look back and I always see some form of sin. Whether it was an idolatry of some form, approval of man, sports, whether it was sexual sin, lots of things come to my mind about my past. And as I look back, I always see the problem was never with God. The problem was always with me. And David wants to teach us about that. And David wants to teach us what we should do if we actually are introspective and reflective to actually see those things. Because we ask, well, what do we do then in those circumstances? What do we do if we find out that we're a worm? And we are. What do we do? Sometimes people think, oh, I can't cry out to God. I can't go to him. But that's not what David does. Notice where David began. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? It's an honest plea to God to say, I am wrong, you are right, save me. And then look in verse 11 what he does. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. If you're in David's circumstances, and if you're not right now, you will be at one point because we will all struggle with sin. And there will be times that we will be in such sin, we will ask, is God even real? I want to encourage you with the psalmist to say, honestly, where are you? But then to conclude in verse 11, be not far from me. That's what David wants most of all, is he wants God to be near him. And as we will see when the psalm comes full circle, God wants to respond to those who are calling for him. But instead, most of the time, instead of calling out for him, we just kind of sit and sulk in our sin. Or we think, oh, we can't actually go to God because our sin is so bad. The psalmist knows who God is. He's right in all that he does. But he knows that he wants to be near him. Now, David's sin and his reflection on it is not over. It continues on from 12 through 18 where we actually begin to observe the consequences of sin. Because we see that sin, while yes, it's personal, um, and it will affect your relationship with God, it will affect your internal being, and it will also affect your external relationships. It will affect what's around you and what is within you. And so David begins to reflect on these things. I would start in verse 12, but I just want to connect that with another part. So we're going to go to verse 14 where David reflects upon the consequences of sin. And he begins by looking at how sin has infected him internally, his insides, what is going on with him. And so in verse 14 through 15, he uses very graphic imagery. He's using metaphors. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breasts. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws and you lay me in the dust. Sin has terrible consequences. Oftentimes we just think that sin is just going to separate us from God, but oh no, it will do much more. Sin will work like a cancer because it works from within. Listen to the language that he uses. I am poured out. What is he saying right there? Is David literally poured out like a drink? No, no. David's saying, I'm spent. I'm exhausted. There's nothing I can do. Next he says, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. David is just trying to communicate with this metaphor, I have no strength. There's nothing in me. This sin that has gotten in me, that has affected me so much to the point that this is what I look like. A puddle or wax from a candle that's just dripping. can do nothing. My strength is dried up like a pot and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Sin, well, yes, it will bring separation with God, and that was his focus originally. It will also have great ramifications and effects and ultimately even lead to physical death. Sadly, in my Christian experience, which has not been very long, only about eight or nine years, I have seen many brothers and sisters, or who I at least thought brothers and sisters, and maybe they are, I don't know, who have had sin around in their life, and it has been hidden in their life. They didn't tell anyone. They didn't reveal anything. They didn't ever pursue counseling. They didn't ever confess their sins to one another. They just suppressed it. And I never knew of it. Never knew of any of it. But I have seen time and time again, brothers and sisters come with their lives just like this. A wreck, spent, ruined, like a puddle of wax, bones apart. And why? It's because the sin that started to be a little thing a little bit earlier, grew into this thing that just destroyed their internal life. Brothers and sisters, sin will not just affect a relationship with God, it will destroy us. Now, in qualification to this, uh, we don't know actually in studying this if David is reflecting upon the consequences of his own sin or the sin of those around him. But in either way, there's consequences that are faced and we see them very clearly. And next we begin to see the consequences of those external sins, of the people around him and the people who are coming after him. Because sins will not just affect you and your internal self, it will also permeate through the people around you. And these are David's enemies who begin to come after him. And we can see that David is living in a broken world of people who want to destroy him. I'm going to go from 12 to 13 to 16 through 18, so skipping once again. But you can see these verses. He describes his enemies as this. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. So he's using the illustrative language again to begin to describe his enemies. Then in verse 16 he says, "For dogs encompass me, a company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones; they stare and gloat over me. They divide any garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots." David describes his enemies as three things. He describes them first as bulls. His enemies are strong. They're powerful. They probably have big armies and lots of money. His enemies are like a lion. They're ferocious, perpetual, ravenous, not willing to stop. And his enemies are like dogs, relentless, coming after him to kill him. David reflects upon the issue that he originally had and he says, it has filled my enemies too. My enemies now come for me and that is now a great consequence of sin. This may not be David's fault, but it is a consequence of the sinful world that we live in. Enemies will come for us. And if you're a Christian, you can probably feel like David sometime at this point when you look at those verses. Yeah, maybe you don't have actual bulls, and these are not actual bulls or actual dogs coming for you. But it can feel as though our world is very strong It can feel as though the tides of the culture are very powerful. It can seem as those who have a lot of political and material might are coming for us. And not just this. It can seem as those who are coming after us are hungry for blood. We live in a culture now that loves death. We live in a culture that denies actually what personhood is. We live in a culture that loves to kill children. We live in a culture that is like a ravenous lion. And it doesn't stop. In our culture, we have a culture that loves to love self, loves to exploit self, loves the sexual revolution and to pursue it. And as we look around, and the church is sitting in the middle, kind of like David, we see all these things going on, and we can just ask, Where's God? Where is God in the midst of this, in the midst of these attackers, in the midst of all these things that are going on in place? And look at verse 19, at what David says, and this is what we need to do in a moment. We'll talk about this as application. Verse 19, he says, but you, O Yahweh, he hears about his enemies close to him, those of the ones who are near, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. David looks around again, just like he cried out from his own sin where he realized he was a, he was a worm. And now he sees all the animals and enemies approaching him and he just says, God, come close. Come near. And David does what we should all do again. David, in the midst of seeing his own sin and seeing the consequences of sin, internal and external, cries out to the Lord. And in David's cry, he's an example for us. David is a great example of a leader, a king, a warrior, but he's also a great example of someone who knows how to cry. And something we need to learn from as Christians And something we can learn by example and how to pray. And what I think even David wants us to do from learning from him in this passage is to learn how to cry out, Lord, be not far off. All of us are dealing with some sin, all of us are dealing with some great struggle in this room in our life. And we can take a word from David and learn how to actually call for forgiveness to say, Lord, come near to me and forgive me. But also what we can learn from David is in this cultural tide where it feels as though we are alone, we can ask the Lord, Lord, please rescue us. Restore our culture if you would. Maybe he won't, I don't know. But restore it. And so a specific application of what I think David wants us to do, what I think David actually wants us to do from this text, is he wants us to learn what he did to cry out to the Lord. And what I want you to do, specific application this week, is to think of a time for five minutes that you can pray to the Lord. And pray over two things. Pray over one, your personal sin. We all have it. Maybe the best time of the day to pray about that is when you're coming away from work. <laughs> Probably a lot of things are going to arise after that time there. Who knows what it is. And then two, Pray for what David prays for. Do not be far off. Rescue us. When we look at the culture around us, when we see things like abortion numbers still continuing on, we can ask, Lord, rid it from our land. When we see companies advocating for uh, transgender therapies, we can say, Lord, rid it from our land. When we see the world going insane, we can say, Lord, rid it from our land. And so I want to encourage you, as David cries out, cry out to the Lord this week. Pray five minutes, five times this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Maybe it's on your road at home from work. If you don't work, do it sometime. But pray and cry because that is what David wants to do. Now, we ask, where's the relief gonna come? Where's the help gonna come? This is a very dim circumstance a very dire situation. It's dark, and I know that. Maybe as dark as it gets, almost in the Bible. What's amazing is not what this verse reveals, but what the whole canon of Scripture reveals. Psalm 22, while, yes, was experienced by David, it was not only experienced by David. What's amazing about Psalm 22 is almost everything that was written in here was actually experienced by another. I believe I have it on a slide to show us the correspondence between what David has experienced to what someone else is going to experience. Because there is someone who is going to come into this place of Psalm 22. And he's not going to deserve to take what's going on in Psalm 22. He's not going to deserve to be forsaken. He's not going to deserve to be abandoned. He's not going to deserve to have attackers at him. But he's going to take it. That one is Jesus. In Matthew 27, verse 46, and I'm not going to have you flip there. I'm just going to walk through these. Jesus on the cross cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not the only time we hear it in Psalm 22. We hear it from the words of Jesus. And think about that. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Then later on, or actually before that, in Matthew 27, 31, Jesus is being taken to the cross. And it says that the ma- there were many who were mocking him, making mouths at him, and wagging their heads at him. And they even said the very same thing these revilers of David say to Jesus in Matthew 27:43: He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And then in John 19, verse 34, it is recorded that Jesus, as he is on the cross dying, a man comes over here and pierces him in the side, and out from him runs blood and water. Like David was poured out like water. And then just as David was in Matthew 27, verse 60, Jesus Christ was laid in the dust to death. And dogs even came and encircled around him as in Matthew 27, 27. And then in Matthew 27, 35, men took the garments of Jesus and they tore them apart and just sold them for money. Where does relief come from in this suffering? Especially if you're someone who's saying, man, I've experienced some of this suffering and I'm going through some of this right now. It comes from this. It comes from knowing Jesus was there too. Jesus took it. The cry that David is crying out, God, be not far off, is answered in the life of Jesus. Jesus took all of these things that David is talking about so that he might rescue David from them, that he might rescue us from them. And just to focus on the verse one, because that's always the contentious one that everybody likes to think about and everybody struggles with. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried out that on the cross and sometimes Christians like to think, oh, God did not really forsake him. And I just want to tell you, brother and sister, if you do not believe that God forsook Jesus on the cross, he will forsake you. Because everything that Jesus did not bear, you will have to bear in judgment one day before him. Jesus took it all. David is crying out, I'm a worm and I deserve to be forsaken. Jesus took on being a worm. Jesus took on every single sin so that as Jesus was seen on the cross, he was not seen as righteous, he was not seen as the Holy Son of God, he was seen as a worm, as hideous. He was seen as garbage. And no, I will make the qualification all the time. There was not like a division in the Trinity or a division between God's nature of being man and human. No. And how to understand those mysteries, I don't know. But Jesus, because he was truly forsaken, because he died in our place, taking all that sin deserves, all that David deserved and the consequences of it, we won't have to face it. And you who are in here who's saying, I'm facing some of this right now, Jesus just wants to say, I'm there. David's cry is answered in Jesus. Be not far off. Jesus saying, I'm here. And anything that you're experiencing, I'm with you in. Like I said, I don't think David knew all these things were going to come about. It's amazing that they're all fulfilled in Jesus. It's how miraculously God works. But David was rescued. Look at the end of verse 21 where David switches, and we will move through this quickly, where David switches to his rescue and to praising God. Listen to what he says at the end of verse 21. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, four. This is so good, 24. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. David, prophesying, some thousand years before the coming of Jesus, knew somehow, some way, even though David had forsaken God, God was going to show him his face again. And he knew that God was going to come near. And God comes near to every person in the form of Jesus. And if you will trust in him, put your faith in him, hope in him, he will come near. And even if you already have, you still need to cry out with the psalmist David, be not far. And as you look through Psalm 22, don't just think this is what David is experiencing. This is what Jesus experienced for me. This is what Jesus took. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you might cry out with the praises of David. I'm going to skip down to verse 29, 31. This might be the first time I've ever skipped some scripture up here, but I'm going to do it. Verse 29. Listen to how they worship because they've been redeemed by the Lord. And this is a good opportunity for us to then worship the Lord after this. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim the righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Done what, you ask? Come near. man. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are not far off and you hear our cries, that you have come near to us. And you have not just come near to us by being a human You have not just come near to us by living. You have not just come near to us as a baby. You have come near to us by taking on our suffering. God, we thank you and praise you for Christ who took all that is described in Psalm 22. We love and praise you in his holy name. Amen.